Daniel in the lion's den. When going through the book of Daniel, and we skipped a few chapters, maybe there is later an opportunity to come back to those, we approach here the end of the recording of the stories about Daniel and his friends. (coughs) And we're getting closer, of course, to the second half of the book of these wild, mysterious, and complicated visions. Usually, certainly for me, to be approached with some trepidation. But before we get there, here is first the well-known and probably the most famous story of all, Daniel in the lion's den. Now the story may remind you of what we read in chapter 3, which we did look at some time ago. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, refused to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. So they were thrown into, into the furnace, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And then there are other par- remarkable parallels, of course, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and here Daniel, were untouched. But in the earlier case, the soldiers, and here the bad officials, they die. And in both cases, the kings involved issue a decree at the end of it to honor God. In fact, some of the commentators believe that there is a symmetry, a chiastic structure in the first half of the book of Daniel. After the first introductory chapter, there are the chapters 2 and 7 with a dream and a vision about four kingdoms followed by God's kingdom. And then in the chapters 3 and 6, there is a report on three Jews and one Jew who refused to disobey God and they were saved. And then in the middle, the chapters 4 and 5, there are the two stories of two proud kings who were both humbled before God, one with a happy ending, the other less so. Well, maybe that is the structure, and was the book intentionally written that way. In any case, the parallel with chapter 3, in this chapter 6 in the book of Daniel, about Daniel and the lions then, it serves as well that it reminds us of the fact that we noted about chapter 3. And the one things, one of the things that we noted is that the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. He does, of course, appear here in chapter 6, but he did not even appear in chapter 3. And the fact that the book is not about Daniel is as well, because Daniel is long dead. And Babylon and the empires he served are long gone. And the relevance of the stories just about him and his time would be limited. But the book is about Daniel's and Shadrachs, and Meshachs, and Abednego's, and our God. And the question for this evening is therefore, what does this chapter 6 tell us about Daniel's and our God that has relevance for us today? But before we try to go and answer that question, let us briefly look at the context of the history. Daniel lived in the period of Judah's exile. 
He was taken captive and he lived in a strange and foreign land. He lived about 200 years after the prophet Isaiah and was a contemporary, maybe a younger generation, but a contemporary of Jeremiah. And these prophets had both predicted not only Judah's exile because of its persistent sinning, but also the return of the remnant and its restoration after 70 years. They had prophesied the remnant will return and the Messiah will come. Isaiah, although more than a century before Daniel, was regarded as a great prophet and as a well-educated and devout teenager, Daniel, when he was taken into exile just before 600 before Christ, was most likely familiar with his prophecies. And we know for certain that he knew of Jeremiah, since he mentions it in chapter 9. And you may also remember, maybe not, that we reflected on Daniel's behavior in chapter 1 in the light of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. Now Daniel remained faithful, and God blessed him, and he became an important man. And this Daniel still lived as an old man when the first Jews returned to Jerusalem, as it is described in the prophecies of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Daniel's own prophecies, I believe, covered the intertestamental period until the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, within this period of exile and of Daniel's life, we are now towards the end of both. It could be even after the first return. The last date that we are given in Daniel is in chapter 10, where it is the third year of Cyrus or Darius, probably the same man. And if this story is, and in this story, in this story, it's actually the last time that we hear from or about him. It is also possible that this event in chapter 6 happened at the beginning of Darius or Cyrus's reign and spurred him on into issuing this decree to let the Israelites return. In any case, here he is, already in his 80s and still, or maybe we should say after Belshazzar, again, on active duty. Now, what we saw in chapter 1 was that Daniel, as a teenager, recognized God as his sovereign. He knew that we are his, that we are not of this world, but that the world is his. And this had, back then, enabled Daniel to draw the line when they were trying to culturally integrate him in the pagan culture of Babylon, and not defile himself with unclean food, because he realized that Israel's identity had to be preserved for the remnant to return, and for the coming of the Messiah. That is what Daniel had heard from Isaiah and from Jeremiah, and that is what he as a teenager believed, and that is what the old top official still believes. And then we saw in chapter 3 that Daniel's friends acknowledged that God is sovereign, that he rules the law of nature. He could save them from the fiery furnace and their personal lives because they say we will obey our God even if he does not save us. 
And that is also what Daniel acknowledges here. Daniel had seen that God is sovereign over the lives of kings in chapters 4 and 5. And he knows. God takes precedence over Darius and his laws of the Medes and Persians. So then let us now look at what happens in chapter 6. We hear in this chapter about God, Daniel, the king, and the group of bad officials. So four parties. And we also hear about two miracles. The first is obviously that Daniel is not torn apart and eaten by the lions. And if you can't find the second miracle, well, then you have to listen very carefully. And I would like to summarize the Bible's message to you this evening in this miraculous story about Daniel in the lion's den all this time ago, as follows. Daniel and our God is the sovereign God. And we know two things. In the first place, how the unbelieving and unwilling witnesses to God's sovereignty are humbled and destroyed. And in the second place, we note how the praying and the willing witness to God's sovereignty is strengthened and protected. So Daniel and our God is of this world, the sovereign God. And we note in the first place how the unbelieving and unwilling witnesses to God's sovereignty are humbled and destroyed. (coughs) We read in Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, do we think that powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil are no reality in our life today? More something for superstitious people, but far from our rational bed. Maybe you could also say that here about the case of Daniel in the lion's den, It was just dirty tricks politicking. It was a struggle for power between people, for snouts in the trough, everyday business, just look at the telly. But there was such a spirit of evil in Daniel's time, and there is in our time. Because you read that Daniel was a good man. He was faithful, always prayed to God. And the ungodly... They hated him for it. They hated what was good. Because Daniel's lifestyle was a testimony they could not bear to see or hear. There are other examples of this in the Bible. Cain and Abel. Where Cain couldn't stand Abel because he was envious of the acceptance of Abel's offer. Or Saul and David. Or Saul was throwing spears at David because he was envious that the spirit had left him, Saul, and gone over to David. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself tells us, they hated me without reason. And that is because there is a struggle in the history of this world between good and evil. 
between God and the devil. It may sound old-fashioned, exaggerated, but it is true. When he sends out his twelve disciples, Jesus warns them in Matthew 10, verse 21, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And such spirits can be all-pervasive. Later in Daniel 8, he is to prophesy that whole empires will be ruled by evil spirits. And there are recent examples, of course, because many people have wondered (coughs) and declared themselves shocked by the atrocities people have inflicted upon other often innocent people. How could such a cultured and educated people as the Germans, as recently as a couple of decades ago, run a concentration camp and do their all their devilish things, and then in the evening go home to the families, sweetly put their children to bed, listen to nice music, and appreciate fine wines. It is because evil spirits and the prince of darkness exist. They existed then, and in the wholesale acceptance of abortion and other things, evil exists today. And Daniel experienced it. But we should also note that notwithstanding the power of evil spirits and what a force it was here, it was the whole political establishment, all 120 satraps. God is sovereign and he governs all reality, also the evil spirits. We see it twice, that God prevails over the evil spirits. In the first place we should note it, in the, chap- in the verses 4b and 5. Verses 4b and 5. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. You see, in all their evil scheming, as part of their evil scheming, they cannot help but give a beautiful testimony and a glowing tribute to Daniel's righteousness. God's servant is witnessed here to be a faithful servant of both the king and his God. Their own evil and the goodness of Daniel, his religion and his God are clearly demonstrated here. Witnessed too by those most unwilling witnesses. And that witness, which they give here in the verses 4b and 5, that is there for everybody to read until the end of time. But then in the second place, let us move to verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had malicious accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The unbelievers were the losers. And what this verse demonstrates beyond doubt, that God is sovereign and omnipotent. Because you see what it verse demonstrates is that line that Daniel wasn't saved because the lions were decrepit or sick or old or lazy or overfed or just couldn't be bothered with Daniel. No, no. 
They were wild and dangerous and hungry, all right. Let's demonstrate it by their death. They were everything you can imagine in a fierce, powerful predator. predator. So the officials died attesting to the miracle of Daniel's survival. And so the scheming, unwilling witnesses testified in life and they testified in death of the goodness of God's servant and the omnipotence of God. That is the terrible irony of the Almighty God. But now, let's focus on the King, the mighty, the rise. The king at the time was a mighty and absolute monarch. They did as they pleased, and they virtually considered themselves God. But if the Rai has fought, he was as important as God. He was a pretty foolish one, who let himself to be tricked by the flattery of his bad officials. Because there they come. Nobody should pray to any God except you, O king, they tell him. And knowing, of course, that Daniel would not pray to him, and knowing, of course, that the king liked Daniel, they tricked the king by flattery. And he falls for it. He takes it, bait, hook, line, and sinker. He issues a law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, it is likely that in the volatile, unruly transition between the Babylonian and the Persian Empire that you can read about in the last verse of chapter 5, that central government was weakened. And it was quite common that local and regional officials were then taking a lot of liberty with interpreting and using legislation to their own advantage. Siphoning off funds, extorting monies from people with some rule. And it was quite possible that they saw in Daniel's elevation a threat to their snout in the trough. And in response, the kings or the Medes and the Persians had introduced detailed laws which had to be adhered to to the letter and could not be changed. Iron rules, as it were, not subject to change and not to be fuzzed or reinterpreted by the local officialdom for their own benefit. We hear about the same thing in the book of Esther. And so here the king is flattered and fooled into issuing one of these laws. And you can, as it were, see the smirk on the face of the bad officials as they smear the honey around the king's mouth. And that done, they all, as a group, check in on Daniel, and then as a group they all run back to the king. And they know that the king won't like this outcome. So they have him first reconfirm that law. Isn't it true, O king? Yes, yes, he says. And then they report Daniel. And now the king is trapped. He tries all day long, this mighty king, to get out, but he can't. His foolishness and despair, they testify to one thing. And that is that certainly he is not the sovereign God he thought he was. Because he can't save Daniel. <coughs> All he can do in verse 16b is say, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. But from this timid wish and the miserable night he has, in verse 18, 
and the anguished voice in the morning, in verse 20, you can see that he was not convinced. He had no confidence in the sovereignty of Daniel's God. He is here an unbelieving witness. It is only God himself who through his protection of Daniel can teach this king his omnipotence. And then after he found Daniel saved by his God, we hear this witness come out again clearly and we read his testimony in the verses 26 and 7. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever and his kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the, from the power of the lions. So then we have him, the world mightiest king, here witnessing to the sovereignty of Daniel's and our God. So we have seen then, in the first place, that the unwilling and unbelieving witnesses to God's sovereignty are destroyed, the bad officials, or humbled, the king. We will in the second place now hear the, that the, how the praying and the willing witness to God's sovereignty is strengthened and protected. Now we mentioned earlier two miracles. And they driving those fierce and hungry lions unharmed is of course the most well-known and famous miracle. But the second one, I think, is described in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel was a highly intelligent man. He was selected for that reason by Nebuchadnezzar. He was well trained. He went to that leading school, the leading school in the world at the time, in Babylon. And he is now in his 80s and having served most of his life at court in very high positions, he was also very experienced. And there can, I think, be no doubt that Daniel, once he heard after the fact of this decree, that he immediately understood the situation. He recognized the political intrigue and the dirty game that was being played. He understood the great injustice and the terrible danger and the irreversible consequences. And he must have understood that no matter how much the king liked him, he could not rely on him. That earthly power would most certainly fail him. And yet, yet Daniel goes and prays. That is the second miracle. God gives Daniel strength to pray. Now there are two things that we should note to understand how God gives Daniel the strength to pray. We read three times just as he had done before. 
You see, Daniel prayed not just at suitable, convenient occasions, time and weather permitting, once in a while, but regularly. And of course, there was now the temptation to skip it. Another time, another place, it's not opportune. Why Why seek danger? Why cause alarm? Why play the bad officials in the cart? Why give them the chance to pursue this injustice? And if Daniel had prayed irregularly, that would have been a strong temptation. But now, since he prayed regularly, skipping it would be a betrayal. And Daniel, who believed in God, does not betray his God. The regularity of his prayer is the beginning of a virtuous circle. God strengthens Daniel. He not through some supernatural infusion of religious energy. No, Daniel is supported and strengthened to go on with his prayer by the regularity of his habits. Three times a day as he had done before. And when reflecting on how God strengthened Daniel, we should in the second place note that Daniel sets his sights on Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, for the answer to that question, we need to turn to Jeremiah 33. We saw that Daniel was familiar with the prophet and that this prophet had predicted the restoration of Jerusalem. The restoration that Daniel had been praying for and looking forward to, as he does in his prayer in chapter 9. And Jeremiah's prophecy about the restoration of Jerusalem also contains one of the most famous messianic passages in the Old Testament. It says, in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line and he will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So Jeremiah had prophesied that the Messiah would come. And that was Daniel's hope and certainty. That was the purpose of Israel's preservation, of him keeping to the food laws and of the rebuilding of Jerusalem which had either just started or was about to start. And that is why Daniel prays towards Jerusalem. And no king, no bad officials, no law of the Medes and Persians could stop Daniel looking forward to the Lord Jesus. In chapter 1, Daniel had recognized, in this world, not of it, and the world is his. And Daniel had indeed participated in this world. And he had served his king very well and very long. But always God first. So looking ahead to Jesus, he had drawn the line. He did not defile himself with unclean food in chapter 1 and not betray the Messiah he longed for in his youth and by God's grace still in old age. And so Daniel, on the one hand, is supported by his regular prayer, and on the other hand, he testifies through his prayer to God's sovereignty. And, as every child knows, God not only strengthened Daniel, but he protected him. 
And the lions in the den, oh, hungry, fierce, wild, they do not touch Daniel. And the powerless and the fooled king comes at the first light of dawn, after a sleepless night, calling out in an anguished voice, Daniel, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you? And then we hear, after first the testimony of his life and behavior, we hear his witness in these beautiful words. My God, my God has sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions, because God is almighty and he loves his children. So then we heard Daniel and our God is the sovereign God and we noted two things. First, how the unbelieving, unwilling witnesses to God's sovereignty are humbled and destroyed. And in the second place, how the praying and the willing witness to God's sovereignty is strengthened and protected. So briefly then and in closing. My God, my almighty God has saved me, says Daniel. But then also, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what our Lord Jesus said. Daniel descended into the lion's den, and he was not left alone. But our Lord descended into hell, and he experienced the most terrible thing of being left alone. Not left alone by people, that happens so often, but by God. And Daniel could pray, because he was expecting that Messiah... And we can pray because we know that the Lord Jesus has come. Daniel prayed three times a day and so armed and strengthened himself. And we, as we read, are also encouraged to pray in that same passage of the Ephesians. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You see, the pitfalls on the road of our life are unlikely to be full of lions. But the pitfalls will be there, and they may be as threatening. And facing that road, we do, do we then live in the confidence that our God is sovereign and can do all? And does our life demonstrate our confidence and trust in God's sovereignty? And do we pray regularly? Pray that I may declare the gospel fearlessly as I should. We heard Paul say in Ephesians 6 verse 20. Our Lord Jesus was left alone so that Daniel and we will never be left alone. And may be therefore, with Paul and Daniel, continue to pray and to wisdom and to witness to our Lord Jesus. Amen.